Hi everyone, welcome to Women the Word from wherever you're watching from. We're so glad you were able to join us. I'm Shelley Davis, I'm part of the Women the Word team and I love being here studying the Word of God with each one of you. When my in-laws died a little over a decade ago, they left a piece of property in a family partnership. And it's worked incredibly well because despite having a whole bunch of people involved with this family property, the partnership gives everyone a plan and a responsibility in that uh, partnership. And in our partnership, someone is designated as the leader of the partnership, but truly everyone is involved in our partnership. They partner together to take care of the legacy that my sweet in-laws left to all of us. And it works for the good of our family. It works for um, the good of the property that we have been left. Today, as we continue to follow Joshua in the good land, we're gonna see another type of partnership we're gonna see a divine partnership. We have a chance to witness how Joshua and the Israelites and um, their leaders operate within the divine partnership that God has with his people. When they remember to believe God and to act on the promises of God as their true divine partner, he responds to their pleas. He gives them guidance and wisdom and great blessings. But when they neglect to include their loving, all-powerful, divine partner in their plans, they get themselves in trouble. Let's uh, begin reading together. Look at Joshua chapter 9, verse 1 with me. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended, uh, worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and uh, crumbly. Uh, last week when we were with Lynn in chapters seven and eight, we saw a great spiritual victory on Mount Ebal for the people of Israel. They built an offer, altar, they offered burn altar offerings to the Lord and they heard God's word read aloud to them. This moment of obedience is actually a high point in Israel's history. But now they are continuing to conquer the land and the kings of Cana are on the offense here. Five kings from the hill country and the lowlands have joined together in an alliance after hearing of Israel's resounding victories over Jericho and Ai, and they're hoping that their combined strength will overcome this incredible enemy, Israel. Joshua's capture of Jericho and Ai has actually driven a wedge into the middle of the country and it's divided it geographically. Uh, the result is that the rest of the 
Canaanites, all of Cana, who have been involved with each other in tribal wars, now they take notice and they bond together and form alliances against this invasion of God's people. But the Gibeonites, uh, they're a smart group and they go for another strategy here. Gibeon is an important city in the hill country of Israel. If you have your map from last week, you may want to locate it right there in the center of Israel. It is northwest of Jerusalem and southwest of Ai. And Gibeon led a confederation that included three other nearby towns. Apparently their leadership of these four towns had divided, had decided together that there was no way they could actually defeat this incredible enemy of Israel in battle. So they implemented this ingenious scheme to deceive Israel. So they send their representatives to Israel uh, disguised as people from a distant land and they arrive seeking out Joshua and his leaders. They're dressed in worn out clothes and they have this crumbly bread and old wine skins. So let's see what happens when they meet with Joshua and his leaders. Look at verse six with me. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants, come now, make a covenant with us. So these guys have a great story. I think the CIA would actually love them. They are prepared not only with these great props of bread and wine and old clothes, but they have prepared a cover story here as well. Can't you just picture these guys rehearsing that cover story on their way to meet Joshua and his leaders? They tell Joshua they're from this distant country. They praise Israel's God, implying that they have come to show respect to Israel's great God and his people. Now notice here how they mention previous battles Israel's been involved in on the other side of the Jordan River, but they don't mention Israel's victories at Jericho and Ai because that would tip the hand to Joshua that these guys are from nearby and they know what's been happening in Cana. They also make a point here uh, to say this isn't just a get to know you drop in visit because we're so friendly. They have an ask and it's a pretty big ask actually. They want a peace treaty. They want a covenant with Israel. So look with me and see how Israel's leaders actually respond. Look at verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Wow, 
Israel makes a couple of big mistakes here. They sample what these guys had brought with them, their crumbly bread and wine. They look at their old clothes and shoes and they take these few small insignificant things as proof of their story. They don't go any further in checking out their story. They don't ask for any documents from whoever their king is. And they could have sent out spies to check out where did these guys really come from? Where have they been and who has seen them along the way? Um, They don't do that. Just based on stale bread, old shoes, and a questionable story, Joshua and his leaders commit the nation of Israel to a peace treaty with a people they really know nothing about. But it's evident here that the Gibeonites know way more about Israel than Israel knows about them because they happen to know that Israel would never make a treaty with a Canaanite neighbor. They apparently are familiar with Israel's laws, the Mosaic laws that say this in Exodus 23:32 on your verse sheet. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And Moses said this, and they obviously aware of it in Deuteronomy 7, 2. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. And you shall make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. Gibeon has done their homework on Israel. Um, and their clever deception works because Israel has not done their homework on Gibeon. Israel's leaders make the foolish mistake here of not doing an investigation, not finding out more about the Gibeonites that are standing there wanting not just a handout, they're wanting a peace treaty. Um, But you know, Israel's next mistake is even more curious to me. Um, They rely solely and completely on their own poor judgment and decision-making. Their leaders never reach out to the Lord, their God, and ask for his opinion, his wisdom, or his permission to have a peace treaty with uh, these guys that have shown up with old shoes and crumbly bread. They do not go to their divine partner who has actually guided them for decades. They have a deep and long relationship with their divine partner. They don't ask for wisdom and they don't ask for permission. They've even, we even saw back in chapter five when we were together that the commander of the Lord's army, the pre-incarnate Christ, talked face to face with Joshua before one of the big battles, uh, before Jericho. And they have just worshiped God on Mount Ebal and heard the law read aloud to him, to them. But here they leave him out. They act like he doesn't exist, or if he does exist, they don't really need him right now. You know, Israel had learned some important lessons on obedience after their defeat at Ai, but now they completely overlook God. They don't ask for wisdom, truth, or direction. And God's word reminds all of us that if we will simply ask God, he is happy and in fact joyful to partner with us in his plan and he will answer us. Look at Psalm 91:15. 15. 
When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And James 1, 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Israel's divine partner is standing there waiting for them to ask. And you know, of all God's leaders, it's interesting that it was Joshua and his leadership who made a covenant here without consulting their God. Joshua had watched Moses for decades consult God over and over and over again when they were in the wilderness. Moses had an incredible partnership with God um, throughout his leadership of Israel. And Moses was Joshua's mentor, his leadership example. But following two incredible God-given victories at Jericho and at Ai, you know, life happens to be good right now for Israel in the good land. And Israel's leaders show their complacency here as they um, just rest in God's favor without resting in his counsel. Um, They also show that they're overconfident in their own abilities Uh, through their complacency in their relationship with God and their overconfidence in their own abilities, their ability to decide whether they should make a peace treaty or not, they become self-reliant, self-reliant instead of God-reliant. They depend on their own wisdom, their own decision-making, their own version of whether this story is true or not. And we see them set aside any real need for God's wisdom and God's favor. But their self-reliance, that self-reliant spirit that has developed through complacency and overconfident is going to cost them in the long run. Look at verse 16 with me. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them and heard that they were neighbors and that they lived among them, Um, They heard that they were neighbors and lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were uh, Gibeon and Shapira and Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim. And the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And then all the congregation murmured against their leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. You know, it's really only a short time here, a mere three days before Israel's leaders discover their mistakes. The Gibeonites are not from a faraway land. They are Canaanites. And now Israel has a binding peace treaty with their neighbors, the Canaanites, in disobedience to God's command. Israel's people are angry with their leaders. But fortunately, their leaders have the integrity and wisdom to honor the peace treaty now that they have made it. And the reason they do that is they have made this unwise peace treaty by swearing in the name of the Lord their God. So now if they break that treaty, even though they were deceived when they made it, Um, they are going to bring shame and reproach on the name of the Lord their God, Israel's God. 
They'll also bring shame and reproach on them as a people. They would open themselves up to God's discipline as well. Look at what happened later in Israel's history when King Saul actually broke this same treaty with the Gibeonites. Look at 2 Samuel with me. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Saul broke this treaty that Joshua and his people made with the Gibeonites. And because of that, there was a famine in Israel for three years. Joshua and his leaders are in a pretty bad spot here. They must honor the treaty and let the Gibeonites uh, live, even though their people are angry with them and they actually want to do what God had commanded them to do previously and put the Gibeonites to death. The cost of Israel's self-reliance is pretty high. It causes them to disobey God's command uh, about treaties with the people of Cana. It brings anger and disunity between Israel's leaders and their people. And it opens up the possibility that they could bring shame on the name of the Lord their God. But even though they must honor that treaty once they've committed to it, Joshua is just not going to let the Gibeonites get away without any consequences. Read with me verse 23. Let's see what Joshua does here. Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And look down at verse 26 with me. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. You know, Joshua has a solution here to his dilemma with the Gibeonites, and his solution is to pronounce a curse on them and to make them servants forever responsible for cutting wood and carrying water for the worship and sacrifices in the Lord's tabernacle. Being servants in the tabernacle worship might perhaps provide some protection from the fear that the Gibeonites are going to infect uh, the nation of Israel with their idol worship since they are involved every single day in the daily worship of Israel's God. And their servitude seems to appease the angry Israelites here. But you know, in the long run, this was not a wise decision on Joshua's part because bringing uncircumcised foreigners into service at the tabernacle would actually defile and profane the holiness of Israel's God. Look at Numbers 3.10 with me. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall guard the priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And Ezekiel 44, 7 says, In admitting foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple, when you offer to me my food, the fat and the blood, you have broken my covenant in addition to all your abominations, and you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge for you 
in my sanctuary. You know, placing foreigners in service in the tabernacle was only a band-aid on a bad decision. And it was never God's plan um, and would forever be one of the costs of Israel's self-reliance. You know, it's pretty easy as we read through chapter 9 to discern Joshua and his leadership mistakes here um, and as leaders ourselves in God's church and as women who love God, uh, there is significant truth here for all of us. Uh, We learn from Joshua and Israel's leaders that self-reliance flourishes in our lives through overconfidence in our own abilities, in our own assets, um, and through complacency in our relationship with God. When we count on our own wisdom, our own resources, our own bank accounts, our own natural giftedness, it is a slippery slope that can lead us to worshiping ourselves instead of our God. You know, as I read this, it made me realize um, that this is a true statement. Self-reliance is the byproduct of thinking too highly of ourselves and too little of our God. Look at Proverbs 3, 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Self-reliance is certainly the byproduct of thinking too highly of ourselves and too little of our God. But complacency in our relationship with God can also play a role in our self-reliant spirit as well. It's funny how complacency in our relationship with God creeps in into all of our lives when life is good. When life is good, Joshua and his leaders had experienced several of God's great miracles as they entered the land, and life was good for them at that moment in the good land. They were eating the fruit of the land. They were victorious in their battles. There was no Red Sea or Jordan River that they were faced with. Um, It's easy to shelve our relationship with our great and gracious God to shelve our dependence on God when life is good. Complacency feeds our self-reliant spirits, but our God wants us to pursue him every day in the good times and in the bad times as a measure of love and devotion. Look at Proverbs 18, 17. 8, 17, I'm sorry. Um, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. And James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You know, we can guard against the self-reliance that Joshua and his leaders fell into from overconfidence and complacency when we persistently and consistently walk in humble dependence on our divine partner. We need to always seek him, always ask him, no matter what decision we're making, small or large, always pursue his presence in our lives, no matter if it's a big day or a terrible day. When life is good, be careful that I don't, I need to be careful that I don't put God aside, forgetting how much I really need him Because if I let self-reliance instead of God-reliance flourish in my life, just like Joshua and his leaders, eventually 
it's going to cost me. Okay, let's look at chapter 10 together. Look at verse 1 in chapter 10. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. Now drop your eyes down to verse five. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. So here we have uh, five kings of Cana assembled together, determined to attack Gibeon because of their treaty with Israel. With the capture of Jericho and Ai, along with the treaty with the four cities of uh, Gibeonite cities, Jerusalem, and um, now the rest of southern Cana are at risk. And the kings become fearful here that all of southern Cana is going to fall into the hands of the Israelites. So uh, we're going to see how Gibeon, uh, when they're faced with attack by these five kings, use their treaty with Israel to their advantage, and they call on Joshua to defend them. Look at verse 6 with me. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by way of the ascent of Beth Haron and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haron, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, Joshua does agree to come to defend the defense of the Gibeonites here, but apparently he actually wasn't obligated to do that by the peace treaty that they had signed. This wasn't a mutual defense pact. He was only obligated by the treaty he signed with them to not attack them himself. And he could have solved his own problem here if he had let these kings take care of the Gibeonites for him. But he was given a great strategic opportunity here with all his armies camped together ready to attack uh, Gibeon right there in one place. It's something every commander would love to have all their enemies come together. He could wipe out all the opposition uh, that would face him as he tried to take over southern Cana as they stood ready to attack Gibeon. 
But this is also the first time that Israel is going to go up against an alliance of their enemies. And this alliance actually consists of their fiercest enemies. The Amorites were uh, battle ready and battle hardened. But but fortunately, Joshua has apparently learned his lesson on self-reliance because we see him hear from God right here. He becomes God-reliant here now instead of self-reliant. God speaks to him before the battle and assures him that victory is going to belong to Israel. And with the confidence that God will fight for them and with them, Joshua takes action. He gathers his men, he marches all night to Gibeon and he takes the enemy by surprise early the next morning Joshua's divine partnership is in full view as the battle begins. Both God and Israel, as you read through this, it's so awesome to see both God and Israel fight together against their enemy. First, God throws the Amorites into a panic, and then Israel's army fights them and chases them. While Israel is chasing them and striking them down with their swords, God uses a weapon of his own. He uses giant hailstones that we learn here actually kill more of the Amorites than the Israelites do by their swords. This battle is an incredible example of how God partners with his people. He gives his people a role and responsibility in his great work and he fights by their side. He fights with them and for them. But as the Israelites chase down the Amorites uh, in order to completely overwhelm these five armies right here, the day is getting later. They start out at daybreak and now it's midday. And if night falls before all of these five armies have been killed, there's a chance they will regroup and attack Israel later. So let's read how God and Joshua partnered to overcome that problem. Look at verse 12 with me. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. It's around midday when Joshua relies in faith on the promise that God had given him earlier. You know, God had promised to give their enemies into Uh, Israel's hand and Joshua believes him. Joshua believes him and he goes on in his belief in faith to rely on God's promise and he prays for the sun to stand still. And it does. It does for 24 hours. This is an amazing miracle that is an answer to God, to Joshua's prayer of faith. Now, I read a few scholars that tried to logically rationalize what happened here. One of them talked about this must have been some type of unusual eclipse, and it would have had to have been unusual because 
The eclipses that I've been part of don't give you more daylight. They make it dark. Uh, um, they also argue that it could have been where the clouds, um, in some strange way, occluded the sun, and then there was a refraction of the light, and that extended uh, the daylight. But you know what the best explanation is here? Uh, the best explanation is to simply take God's truth at face value. Um, there's no reason not to believe the account that we read right here. God promised victory. Joshua believed God's promise and partnered with him in prayer, asking for the sun to stop to aid their victory. And God answered him. God answered him. He apparently did it by literally stopping the rotation of the earth. That's what would have had to have happened for the sun and the moon to both stand still. He stopped the movement of the sun and the moon, exactly how Joshua says it here. God would also have had to stop, and certainly he can, the supernatural effects of um, tidal disturbances and gravity disturbances for that 24 hours. And while the sun stands still for 24 hours, Israel fights on until they have completely defeated and overwhelmed these five armies. Joshua brings his prayer of faith. Israel brings the army and God brings his infinite power to work on behalf of Israel in this unique and stunning miracle. It's a perfect example of a divine partnership with the God of all the universe and his people. And this uh, stunning miracle is also recorded, we see here, in something called the Book of Jashar. Now, the Book of Jashar um, is a, a compilation of extra biblical compilation of Hebrew songs and poems that honors the accomplishments of Israel's leaders. This is included in the book of Jashar. And because it's included in the book of Jashar, it also gives validity to the account that we read here. The sun and the moon stopped. But Joshua's work, we know, even after this stunning miracle, is not actually over yet. There are five kings that he still needs to deal the same defeat to them that Israel has defeat has dealt to their armies. Look at verse 16 with me. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda, and it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemy, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. Okay, so Joshua's men have tracked and trapped these five kings um, that fought against them in a cave at Makeda. They rolled a stone in front of that cave and they've gone on to finish off the armies by pursuing them and completely defeating them. So after taking care of all the armies and all the fighting men, Joshua actually returns now to take care of these five kings. And he has them brought out of the cave that they have been trapped in. And he uses this moment when he brings out these five kings before he actually executes them, which he goes on to do. He uses this moment to build the confidence of Israel's leaders. 
In the ancient Middle East, the ultimate act of subjugation and dominance was to have your foot on the neck of your enemy. And that's exactly what Joshua commands his leaders to do here. He has the kings brought out and they do this symbolic act with his commanders and the kings where they place their feet on the neck of their enemy. And then Joshua says to them, to his commanders, similar words that God actually said to Joshua as they began their journey together. Look at verse 25. And Joshua said to them, his commanders, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. You know, I loved it here that Joshua's words were not about Israel's strength. He doesn't talk here about what a great army Israel have. He doesn't talk about his own leadership abilities and how he planned and executed this great battle today. He doesn't even talk about his commander's expertise in battle as he seeks to encourage them. His words here to strengthen his leaders as they stand with their feet uh, right there on the necks of their enemies are a reminder of their partnership with God. God is with them. God fights for them. God will bring them victory. The Lord fights for his people when they have the courage to believe his promises and partner with him wherever he takes them. And as the sun is finally going down here after the execution of these five kings, Joshua places memorial stones over the graves of the Canaanite kings. And this memorial over the graves of the Canaanite king is a reminder to their enemies and to the people of Israel of God's faithfulness and God's power as their divine partner. Now, through their victories so far, God has given them this wedge in the center of Cana as a base of operations. And from that wedge that they have completely conquered now in the center of Cana, they can advance both to the south of Cana and to the north of Cana. And beginning here in uh, verse 28 of chapter 10, that's what we see them do. We see Joshua and the Israelites advance into southern Cana and fight and win seven more victories. The whole time they're partnering with God's power and obeying God's commands. Let's look at the outcome of their southern campaign together in verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So we see right here, as he finishes up all these battles, his partnership with God at work. Joshua and the Israelites have been obedient to God's command to destroy the idol-worshipping Canaanites, and it is the Lord who has fought for Israel, giving them victory in battle after battle. And the rewards of Israel's God-reliance here are clear. 
It's clear. God gives them, when they rely on him, he gives them the blessing of victory after victory over their enemies. They've also had the blessing of witnessing God's incredible power in these miracles, the sun standing still, the giant hailstones that actually killed more of the enemy than they killed themselves. Those are the rewards of God reliance. Um, and they stand in stark contrast to their self-reliance, the cost of their self-reliance earlier, which was anger and disunity and disobedience. Israel's conquest of southern Cana is only accomplished through their God-reliance and their divine partnership with their all-powerful God. And you know, there's great wisdom for us in this chapter as well that is relevant in our lives. I love studying both of these because it became so real to me, the truth of these great chapters. And the truth of uh, this chapter is that an effective God-reliant um, divine partnership first of all, requires that we believe God's promises. We must believe God's promises. That's what we see here with Joshua. His prayer of faith for God literally to stop the sun was born out of his belief in God's promise of victory. If he had doubted that God meant his promise of victory or if he had doubted that God had the power to bring his promise uh, to fruition, Joshua wouldn't have partnered with God in prayer. Joshua would have simply picked up his sword and fought harder in the battle himself, relying on his own strength and his own cunning in order to hopefully win the fight. And you know, we can be guilty of that as well. If we don't believe God's promises, we simply rely on our own strength, don't we? And we rely on our own cunning to win life's battles. Our divine partnership flourishes just like Joshua's when we believe the promises of God and walk with him in faith. But you know, believing um, God is only part of what we saw Joshua do here. We also saw him act on the promises of God. Joshua believed God's promise of victory, so he acted by first praying and then heading into the fight with Israel's army, advancing God's kingdom and God's plan for Israel to possess the land. Our divine partnership flourishes as well when we act on God's promises, partnering with him to advance his kingdom and his plans. You know, believing God is important. It's always the first step. But our belief should spur us into um, living out that belief. Our belief in God's promises needs to bring action in our life. You know, um, as I thought about God's promises, I thought about some of the actions that spur all of us on. You know, when I believe his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us, it spurs us to act openly, to live as Christians in a culture that disagrees with us on almost everything. When we believe in uh, the promise that he hears and answers our prayers, it spurs us to the action of praying for our family and our friends and our country. When we believe that he will be our strength and our shield, it spurs us 
to stand firm no matter what the fight is, no matter what the fight, whenever we suffer hardship. Our Bibles are full of God's promises that just like Joshua should spur us to action as we partner with God to advance his kingdom and his plans. Look at Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our divine partnership flourishes when we believe the promises of God and when we act on the promises of God, partnering with him to advance his kingdom and his plans. Pray with me. Father, we are so encouraged by the truth of your word, by the wisdom that you share with us. Um, I just thank you that um, we have Bibles. We have the opportunity to study and to learn your truth and to, be, uh, to understand your promises and to act on them. Father, I pray that as women of God, we will uh, be encouraged in our belief and spurred on to action. I thank you for the opportunity to be together today, um, studying the truth of your word together and um, encouraging each other to live by your promises and act on them. And I pray this in the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.